Welcome to Cybersecurity Growth, a show for aspiring and existing cybersecurity leaders. I'm your host, Sean Valley, Executive Director and CISO of Cybersecurity Growth, former Chief Security Officer of Rapid7 and former CISO of Tricentis. I'm also a musician here on Twitch and elsewhere under the name Music by SV, but more on that later. Welcome to episode number two, Secure Controls Framework, part two, Practical Applications. In today's episode, we will pick up where we left off last week. Last week was an introduction to the Secure Controls Framework. We just called it part one, went over the details. So if you haven't had a chance to check it out, just go back to episode one and you can get an overview of what is the Secure Controls Framework. But as I was learning this, I realized there was a whole lot more detail than could be covered in a single episode. So we're continuing on to part two. It's possible I might have a third part. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, But here we are, part two. Today we're going to cover areas of how the secure controls framework could actually be applied. Practical applications, real world, maybe some real world applications. We'll we'll start to dig into the, the practical applications. If you're new to cybersecurity growth, uh, just the basic format, talk about some of the news of the week, just a couple topics that I think might be valuable to our audience. And then we'll dive deep into the topic of the week, which I am calling it death by slides. I used to call it death by PowerPoint, but the truth is I'm using Google Slides a whole lot more nowadays than when I used to use the term death by PowerPoint. Years and years ago, I'd always say the term death by PowerPoint, but I don't use PowerPoint nearly as much as I used to. I use Google Slides more, so I'm changing the title of our main section to death by slides. And that's where I am going to present to you uh, something uh, that will be our main topic of the day. And in many cases, our slides are actually me learning this content and sharing it with you in real time. We'll get into that in a little bit. And then when we wind things up, we have a section called What You Listening To? You may or may not know, I'm a big old fan of music in many ways, shapes, and forms, so can never go through one conversation without talking about music, so I'll talk about what I'm listening to. And if you're here in chat, uh, this is an interactive show. Feel free to join in and chat, and when we get to that section, love to hear what you are listening to. Um, and the whole show is interactive, so if you uh, have questions as we go through some of the sections, feel free to shout them out. I'll take pauses from time to time to, uh, to address some of those questions. And we're going to get into it now. First up today with our top news stories. And this first one here comes from Rapid7, a um, place I know all too well. Uh, new Emergent Threat Response, uh, a name that just rolls off the tongue, CVE 2022-47966. Rapid7 observed exploitation of critical manage engine vul- vulnerability. Um, this, so there's a big threat in the vul- the manage engine capabilities, the manage engine tool and tools that connect with manage engine. Uh, Glenn Thorpe of Rapid7 
I believe he said this on LinkedIn, may have been somewhere else. He says, this has kept us busy over the last 24 plus hours. If you're running man manage engine software, you should one, patch it always, no questions asked, just do it. 2A, keep it as segmented as possible from the public internet, regardless of its function. And two, migrate away from it. So that's coming right from Glenn over at Rapid7. There's a dozen of products that are imp uh, impacted by this uh, uh, this um, high-risk vulnerability. Many uh, Active Directory plugins are impacted by this. Many uh, privilege access management tools, um, support tools, and the like. So sharing this, if you know that you have some Manage Engine in your environment, might be a good idea to go talk to your teams and get these things updated as quick as humanly possible. Get these things out of your main network, uh, segment those somewhere else, and get these things addressed as quick as possible. Uh, so I thought that was valuable to bring to our team, to our audience, to you. Um, if you weren't aware, Rapid7 seeing some real concerns here, and uh, I want to make sure that you are aware of it and you are addressing anything that's using Manage Engine because there's a critical vulnerability that's out there, and Rapid7 is concerned about it. Moving on to topic number two of the news. This one comes from Tim Farrell over at CSO Online. And uh, the topic is 11 top XDR tools and how to evaluate them. Uh, and, and it reads, extended detection and response tools provide a deeper and more automated means to identify and respond to threats. These are some of the most popular options. So, it's not really a news article. I actually look at this almost as a as a, an advertisement. It could very well be a paid advertisement for CSO Online. I don't know. But, as a person who's responsible for selecting security tools uh, for organizations that I work with, either permanently or consult with, I find it valuable to keep up with what's going on with the market and where things are evolving. So uh, I thought this was worth bringing up. And um, XDR is definitely one of, if not the hottest acronym of the moment. So let's do a brief intro. And I was thinking there might be an opportunity for us to do something a little bit deeper uh, down the road. Well, let's do a little intro. According to the article at CSO Online by Tim Farrell, uh, XDR is a relatively new class of security tool that combines and builds on the strongest elements of SIM, EDR, and SOAR. Okay, so that's cool. So really what XDR is, is three product types just rolled into one. Now it makes sense. If you weren't certain what XDR was, if it, uh, that definition makes really good sense. And as a former moose of Rapid7 myself, Rapid7 actually has three products in this category, sort of, sort of, sort of. They're kind of missing the EDR source. I think they're kind of missing the EDR. Eh. But the other piece is definitely, definitely there. Um, so this article basically just lays out the top 11 tools that they believe exist. So why don't I bring this on the screen? We'll scroll through them really quickly. I'm more just saying I, I'm interested in what are these tools? Which ones are we talking about here? And am I aware of them? Should I be aware of them? Of course, I have my ad blockers on, so you won't see many ads here. I'm going to just scroll through the article and see which tools uh, 
come to the list. All right, first one on the list, and I don't think, yeah, it says in here, they're in no particular order. Trend Micro Vision 1. I've never heard of that before reading this article. So, note to self, go learn what Trend Micro Vision 1 is. So, apparently, Trend Micro, a legacy AV vendor, is in the XDR space. Uh, Microsoft XDR. I guess I, I didn't realize Microsoft had XDR, but now as I read it, it's Microsoft combining multiple services of theirs. So Microsoft Sentinel, which is their relatively new SIM tool. I've used it. I like it. I'm not saying it's the only SIM that I would want. I probably would use that and then bring another SIM in. So keep that in mind. I haven't really looked at Microsoft Sentinel as the one SIM to rule them all, but I did like it for my Microsoft environments. So they're combining Microsoft Sentinel, Microsoft 365 Defender, and Defender for Cloud. And they are different things. Microsoft Defender for Cloud is focusing on your cloud applications. Um, it, it focuses very well on cloud applications that are made by Microsoft. And it does a pretty good job um, with cloud applications that you kind of uh, roll into the Microsoft Defender for Cloud tool. So it's kind of like their um, cloud security posture management-like tool. And where Microsoft 365 Defender is your endpoint security, your old AV, your agent that lives on um, on your endpoints uh, and then rolls up to a centralized service. So they've got their SIM, their endpoint management tool, and then their cloud tool. I like them all, but I feel like Microsoft has, has had a couple challenging years of demonstrating that they are a real player in the security space. But uh, over the last year, I've, I've seen some good... I've had some good experiences with, with uh, Defender for Cloud and, um, and Sentinel. But like I say, I don't think I want to roll everything into it. All right, third one, Palo Alto Networks, Cortex-XDR. I'm going to be honest, I don't know much about what Palo... I don't know much about Palo's tools. I do know that they're a leader in the space, in, in many security spaces, but I haven't used their tools. Uh, this might be one I, I want, might want to take a peek at. Next one up is CrowdStrike Falcon Insight XDR. So I'm very familiar with CrowdStrike. I'm very familiar with CrowdStrike Falcon, but I don't know what Insight XDR is. And I have to imagine they're taking the Falcon console, which has a ton of different capabilities, the Falcon agent, which lives on endpoints, um, and just rolling everything into you know, one tool, and they're saying, hey, XDR, we're XDR, just like everyone else. Um, CrowdStrike has a ton of capability. I've, I've had some, a lot of time hands-on with CrowdStrike and many of their different tools. They have one dashboard that it all lives in. I find the dashboard a little bit tricky to use, um, but a ton of data, and you can find a lot of information in there. So um, it makes, makes sense. CrowdStrike, you know, one of if not the leader, the the leader in the EDR space. Um, um, I'm thinking, like, how do they have SIM and SOAR? One of the things I thought of from a Falcon perspective is they di I didn't see them really have a SIM, a true SIM capability, but I found their EDR. Um, in some cases, meeting almost all of my SIM needs. But again, it's a different use case. So I'm going to dig into Insight XDR a little bit more. Um, as a CrowdStrike Falcon user, I know a lot of their products, but Insight XDR, I just need to learn more about it. All right, next one, Bitdefender, Gravity Zone Business Security Enterprise. I never heard of this. I've heard of Bitdefender. 
Um, Bitdefender's anti-malware tools, favorite by IT pros. I feel like this is like one of those um, free AV tools that comes on some Windows computers. I got to learn more about this. I've, I've never heard of this tool. Um, interesting. Sentinel-1, Singularity XDR. So Sentinel, Sentinel-1 is like a side-by-side competitor with CrowdStrike in the EDR space. I've used Sentinel-1's EDR. Uh, great tool. Great on Windows, great on Mac, uh, pretty good on Linux from what I remember. Um, but I don't know about Singularity XDR, and I'm I'm guessing they've somehow now have more sim-like capabilities and have rolled some automation incident response in. Cyber Reason XDR makes sense. One of the early players in the uh, EDR space has... Um, oh, this is interesting. Cyber Reason's building their XDR on top of Google Chronicle, which is Google's sim and SOAR. So they've taken the Cyberies and EDR and they've licensed the Google SIM and SOAR and now boom we have an XDR that's neat how they did that okay um, Carbon Black now VMware Carbon Black XDR again one of the early players in the EDR space um, they just announced in November that they're an early preview of their XDR tools so they've got a ways to go there um, I've always thought VMware is interesting they you know they acquired um, uh, an MDM tool. Oh man, I did the MDM tool just like left my mind. They acquired an MDM tool a few years ago, and uh, they acquired Carbon Black, and so they're they're kind of growing their security and endpoint security um, bench pretty well. I think this is interesting. Elastic, um, which uh, weren't they acquired? Did they just get acquired? Anyways, Elastic Security for XDR. Um, if I think about Elastic, Elastic is a Splunk-like tool, but if you actually peel back the layers of the onion, um, it actually works a little bit different. The searching and the indexing works different than Splunk, but from an end-user perspective, they look very similar. Years ago, I used to build Elk Stacks, Elastic, Logstash, and Kibana. So it's basically like a roll-your-own sim. And then Elastic realized, hey, we can we can make our own sim. They built their own sim. And now um, they're saying their SIM and their SOAR capabilities gives them XDR. Okay. Uh, Trellix XDR platform. No idea what this is. I know the name. Um, yeah, let's see here. Trellix is a result of McAfee Enterprise merging with FireEye in October 2021. <clears throat> if I remember this, in 2014-2015, I tested out a... FireEye um, SIM in the cloud really early on. This is before I was comfortable bringing anything in the cloud in my environment. Um, super expensive compared to like on-premise uh, QRadar, on-premise Splunk, believe it or not. Um, so you really had to pick what you wanted. You couldn't really bring everything in because it was just so expensive for them to move all the data to the cloud, to AWS, um, but it looks like FireEyes continued um, down this path and a combination of McAfee and FireEye rolling out a new EDR, XDR platform. Okay, so McAfee, you know, talk about a name that we all knew about in the AV space who's fallen off the earth. You know, I think the only people that we know that uses McAfee are our parents and grandparents when they buy a uh, Windows computer and McAfee's just built in. I don't 
see many people using it for enterprise. I know I know it was definitely a stalwart in the government space, so maybe it's still out there. All right, last one in the list: Cynet 360 Auto XDR. That's the first I've ever even heard the word Cynet. Um, I'll have to take a peek at it. Anyways, those are the top eleven. Those are the top eleven items from the. CSO Online's article on the top 11 XDR tools. Thought that'd be interesting for us to look at. I got one more news article before we top in, before we jump in to the topic of the week. This article comes from Lucian Constantine over at CSO Online. And the title is, Attackers Deploy Sophisticated Linux Implant on Fortinet Network Security Devices. And it says here, uh, the exploit... Hold on, let me zoom in a little bit so we can all read it. The exploit allows attackers to remotely execute arbitrary code and commands without authentication. Fortinet disclosed that a critical vulnerability in the 40OS operating system was being exploited by attackers in the wild. This week, the additional analysis, the company released more details. I think I read that wrong. This week, after additional analysis, the company released more details. The original zero-day attack was highly targeted to government-related entities. And if you were wondering, the CVE. This is CVE 2022-42475. It's in the SSL VPN functionality of 40OS and can be exploited by remote attackers without authentication. Successful, successful exploitation can result in the execution of arbitrary code and commands. My takeaway is patch your stuff. Patch your Fortinet gear, folks. Patch your Fortinet gear. That's why I brought this in here. I thought this would be uh, informative as there is a nasty Fortinet bug that's out there. It is currently being exploited in the wild. Check your environments. If you've got some Fortinet gear out there, um, this appears to be in the 40 OS, so it's probably across multiple product lines. Go patch your Fortinet stuff. Go patch your, go patch your firewalls and other Fortinet stuff. Well, folks, that's the news of the week. We're gonna get into the next section in just a moment. I get a bit of a cold this week. A little stuffy, a little snuffly. I don't know if my warm Rapid 7 coffee is going to fix me, but that's what we're going to try. All right. Let me bring the topic of the week up. We're going to get into our section known as Death by Slides. And where we left off last week, you may remember we were talking about this thing here, the Secure Controls Framework last week. We spent a lot of time going down the rabbit hole of what this is. And just to give you a little bit of understanding of where I was and where we are going, I have learned about this framework from multiple colleagues and decided to educate myself on it. So over the past few weeks, I started to get familiar with this I have rolled it. I have used this in my work over the last year, but I will say I, I've done it without actually a whole lot of planning. I've more execution, so kind of reverse engineering the planning part. 
And last week we got into the overview of what is the Secure Controls Framework. We cover this is basically our overview slide. We covered the first three topics in the slide: what is and what is not SCF. We covered secure by design and privacy by design principles, and then we covered integrated controls management. And I felt like we were out of time. All of these, all of this content here comes directly from the SCF Start Here guide, which you can get right from the Secure Controls Framework website. And uh, we're just going to pick up where we left off from last week. Um, so we finished with the integrated controls management. I'm going to fast forward us, and today we're going to cover practical use of, of Secure Control Framework and the integrated controls management. And then we're going to wrap up with security and privacy capability maturity model. And there are two other areas which I don't plan to get into today just because it's so, so much detail. Um, and I think we'll have enough information to say, hey, if you were thinking about using SCF, you've known enough that you can start digging into it. So that's, that's what we're going to do here. Let me fast forward ourselves to the slides of the week. And we'll get ourselves started. All right, here we go. So practical use of SCF and ICM. So ICM is meant to be put into practice. This is integrated controls management. Uh, ICM is meant to be put into practice by organizations of any size or industry. The information below provides an understanding of available options to implement ICM with existing solutions. The SCF is a great way to implement the ICM. Okay, then. Well, let's find out more about what this thing is. Establish context. Uh, I'm not going to read every everything on the slides here. I do have some notes, and I'll read some of my notes here uh, that goes along with, in some cases, it's a wall of words. In other cases, we do have some visuals on the screen here. So first up, uh, part of your due diligence process is to establish the context of the scope for cybersecurity and privacy controls. Practical steps to establish context includes four things. One, read through the secure, secure and privacy by design principles to familiarize yourself with the 32 domains to understand how they come together to address the cybersecurity, privacy, and physical security considerations for a modern security program. Two, talk with representatives outside of IT and cybersecurity to gain an appreciation of other compliance requirements like Talk with legal, procurement, physical security. Go talk with your partner teams. Three, come up with a list of the must-have laws, regulations, frameworks that your organization must comply with. The must-have, but laws and regulations and frameworks, okay. And then four, come up with a list of nice-to-have requirements that your board of directors or other stakeholders feel are necessary. All right, so three is your must-haves. Four is your nice-to-haves. It's interesting how they delineate those. Okay. Must-haves are laws, regulations, and required frameworks. Nice-to-haves are what your executive and your board team, other stakeholders, find important. Okay. I like that. Uh, understand the requirements for both cybersecurity and privacy principles uh, involves a simple process of distilling expectations. This process is all part of documenting reasonable expectations that are right size for an organization since every organization has unique requirements. 
Some people freak out and think they have to do all 1,000 controls in the SCF. That's just not the case. Uh, it's best to visualize the SCF as a buffet of cybersecurity and privacy controls where there's a selection of 1,000 plus controls available to you. You, uh, you, do not, you don't have to eat everything, as as everything possible on the buffet table. I'm just reading some of my notes here and there's some typos. Uh, you don't have to read every, eat everything on the buffet table. Same applies to the FCF control set. Once you know what is applicable to you, you can generate a customized control set that gives you just the controls you need to address your statutory, regulatory, and contractual obligations. The approach looks at the following spheres of influence to identify applicable SCF controls. There's four of them. Statutory, regulatory, contractual, and industry-recognized practices. So, statutory obligations. These are the laws, you know, state laws, federal laws, international laws. Regulatory obligations. These are the requirements from regulatory bodies or government agencies. Contractual obligations. These are requirements that are stipulated in contracts, customer contracts, partner contracts, vendor agreements, etc. And then four, industry-recognized practices. These are requirements that are based on an organization's specific industry that are considered reasonably uh, expected practices. So please keep in mind that the SCF is a tool and it is only as good as it's used, just like a pocket knife shouldn't be used as a pry bar. Realistically, if you do not scope the controls from SCF correctly, you will not address your applicable compliance requirements since you are missing what is expected. This is not a deficiency of SCF. This is just simply negligence on the part of the user of the tool. I'll take that. Uh, to make sure scoping is done properly, it is imperative for you to speak with your legal, IT, project management, cybersecurity, and procurement teams, and any other stakeholders you feel may be relevant to the scoping controls. The reason for this collaboration is so that you can get a complete picture of all the applicable laws, regulations, frameworks that your organization is legally obligated to comply with. Those teams will likely provide the best insights into what is required and that list of requirements then makes it simple to go through and customize your SCF for specific needs. All right, so we talk about f this for just a second. Um, kind of my takeaway of this is whoever's running your SCF program, it's probably someone in your compliance team or your GRC team. You know, the takeaway for them is go talk to your SecOps people, go talk to your product security people, people, go talk to your, go talk to your CISO. Um, but go talk to legal, go talk to procurement and kind of have those interviews with these people to get a sense of what matters to you. And you can pick through the list of controls to determine um, what matters. Um, again, easy. the easy way to do this is to look at your compliance requirements and um, just apply the SCF controls that, that align with those requirements. And then that way your compliance aligns with SCF and, and the business as well. Let's move on. Moving on. Define applicable controls. So this is starting to give you a little bit of a view of what this thing looks like when it's actually in use. So this is actually part of the SCF uh, download um, that, that you can grab. It's an Excel spreadsheet um, right from the Secure Control Frameworks website. So there's a column that exists in the SCF to help with the task of defining applicable controls. It's a column called the Minimum Security Requirements Filter um, that'll help you with the process. 
The SCF is fundamentally an Excel spreadsheet. Therefore, you can use your Excel skills to manually filter the requirements. If you are comfortable with Excel, you'll take you like five or ten minutes to do this filtering based on how the requirements, what you need to map to. So here's a cool thing. You don't need to build this. It's just, you know, grab the file, download it, and then filter to your needs. Uh, as previously mentioned, the ICM is focused on defining the must-haves versus the nice-to-have requirements. The minimum compliance criteria are the absolute minimum requirements that must be addressed to comply with applicable laws, regulations, and contracts. I love that as your minimum requirements. It's, it is laws. Discretionary security requirements are tied to the organization's risk appetite since DSR are above and beyond MCC where, organization, where the organization self-identifies additional cybersecurity and data protection controls to address voluntary industry practices or internal requirements, such as findings from internal audit or risk assessments. Minimum security requirements is the resulting control set necessary to be compliant and secure to manage your organization's cybersecurity and privacy program. This is very cool. Using this spreadsheet, you find your must-haves, to exist as a business legally, your nice-to-haves, what you want to do from a security perspective, over and above your must-haves, and then you have your list, like this is what we're going to do. These are the controls that we're going to focus on. Um, very, very interesting. And, and there's a lot more detail in the guide. I'm not going to read all the details from the guide, but this is I'm starting to see the value of grabbing this framework and having this part of kind of an onboarding assessment uh, or maybe an annual assessment. As we continue on, assign maturity-based criteria. Assign maturity-based criteria. Okay. From the previous step, you identify the controls that are applicable to your, your specific needs, your MCC and your DSR. You can now use the SPCMM. We're going to dig into this a little bit. With the SPCMM criteria, cap uh, capability maturity model criteria, to define what right looks like for each control. Um, the SCF doesn't tell you what to select. That's up to you to do that assessment. But that, this is where we're heading to next. So, um, one of the next pieces that uh, is listed here in the guide is publishing policies and standards. So, there are generally three options for obtaining cybersecurity and privacy document documentation. One, use internal resources to write write them in-house. So we're talking about writing your policies and writing your standards. Compliance Forge has a guide here that we'll talk about in a second. Um, writing your policies and writing your standards after you um, identify your security controls. Uh, first, you can have people in-house write them. Two, you can hire a consultant to write a bespoke set of documentation, which if you're new to this, just go hire a, uh, an audit consultant to help you there. Or three, Purchase a set semi-customized templates online. Compliance Forge is really good for this. Um, and, and in fact, the document that's linked here, Compliance Forge wrote a document to help organizations understand cybersecurity and privacy documentation. Uh, it's available at complianceforge.com. It is one of their free resources to educate organizations on what proper cybersecurity and data protection documentation based on definitions from authoritative sources. Uh, these policies and standards provide the requirements that your organization has to adhere to. Okay. Assign stakeholder accountability. 
Uh, assigning stakeholder accountability offers unique challenges for organizations since it is beyond IT, cybersecurity, and privacy. Okay. Common stakeholders involve HR, procurement, facilities, management, legal, and many other teams to ensure accountability is enforceable. Realistically, this step is in executive management function since it requires interdepartmental enforcement by organizational management. Uh, a great starting point is the NIST uh, special publication 800-181, Workforce Framework for Security, the NICE framework. Uh, the NICE framework offers an efficient way to assign stakeholder accountability for internal and external stakeholders. Um, it's available at um, the publications over at NIST.gov. Uh, I have used this framework. It is very helpful. I've used some um, trimmed down versions of the framework, but I have found it useful. Uh, so just some takeaways on the notes from the SCF guide here. What, you know, what is being said to wrong screen. What is being said to us here is um, determining who your account, your account stakeholders are and, and assigning responsibility to your stakeholders is really an executive management function. So are you an advisory CISO? Are you, you know, a security leader who's more kind of advising the business? Or are you taking the business by the reins and getting things done? I'd say this is kind of a tough function to do if you are an advisor. If you are saying, I advise the business, but I don't actually do the business. Uh, if you are more kind of an advisor to the business, then you might want to partner with someone else to, um, to take the lead on this, someone from your executive team. If you feel like you are a part of the executive team, or you play a role where you are a part of the executive team, and this is something you can do yourself, like determine who your stakeholders are and assign um, accountability to them. Those are just my thoughts on that piece there. <clears throat> maintain situational awareness. So maintaining situational awareness has different meanings based on the security culture of your organization. For some organizations, it means metrics, while for others, it means a broader understanding of control performance, risks, threats, and current vulnerability information. The Compliance Forge Security Met Metrics Reporting Model, SMRM, takes a practical view towards implementing a sustainable metrics reporting capability. At the end of the day, executive management, like your CIO, CEO, your board of directors, etc., they often just want a simple answer to a relatively straightforward question. Are we secure? Uh, in order for a CISO to honestly provide an answer, it requires a way for the CISO to measure and quantify an apples and oranges landscape where processes and technologies lack both uniform risk weighing, weighting and abilities to capture metrics. And what you're seeing here is kind of an intro to the NIST cybersecurity framework. Um, maybe we'll do a show on that at some point if you're not familiar. You have five big categories here trying to help you determine are you secure? Categories of identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. It's one of the many frameworks that are actually in the SCF. Um, it's also one of those frameworks that can help you determine your must-have and your nice-to-have security controls as well. Manage risk. 
So there are many ways to manage risk. Uh, in one of our upcoming ep episodes, we're going to have an upcoming ex episode that is all about risk management. So this is the SCF's take on managing risk. Um, we'll do an overview of this in a couple weeks. So, or, or we'll do a deeper dive of risk um, from a wider lens in a couple weeks. So many ways to manage risk. However, the SPRMM, Risk Management Module, well, we'll see that in a moment. The SPRMM contains a control-centric uh, risk catalog, threat catalog, and methodology to perform a risk assessment. Three things. The value of the SPRMM is having a standardized methodology where controls are tied to specific risks and threats based on the other criteria offered by the SCF like weighting and maturity criteria. The SPRMM makes calculating risk a straightforward process. Controls are the nexus of a, of a cybersecurity and privacy program, so it is vitally important to understand how controls should be viewed from a high-level risk management perspective. To progress from identifying a necessary control to determining a risk, it's a journey that has several steps each with its own unique terminology. Therefore, it's important to baseline the understanding risk management terminology. According to the Program Management Book of Knowledge Guide, the PMBOK, there's three things, three things that matter. Risk tolerance, risk threshold, and risk appetite. Risk tolerance is the specified range of acceptable results. Risk threshold is the level of risk exposure above which risks are addressed and below which risks may be accepted. And risk appetite is the degree of uncertainty an organization or individual is willing to accept in anticipation of a reward. It is important to note that the risk tolerance and risk appetite are not the same thing. In terms of cybersecurity materiality, risk tolerance matters. Um, I actually use these. Um, one, your auditors will ask in certain compliance frameworks about risk, and uh, they will want to know kind of what your risk management looks like, and they'll actually want to know answers to these three things. Um, knowing your risk threshold, like do you have when you kind of risk score things, what's the score that you will, as a business, just say we ex anything at this score and lower, we will just accept that risk. And we're fine with it. But anything with a score of this number or higher, uh, we're not going to accept that risk. We need to do something about it. Um, risk appetite is kind of is is kind of a sense of um, you know how risky is your business, right? How risky, how risk averse is your business? And so this is really getting a sense of your CEO and and the company's culture as a whole. Um, the intent of standardizing risk terminology for categories is so that all the organization's personnel can speak the same risk language across the enterprise. Categorization also allows management to compare and prioritize risks. So here's what's important. In f working with your executive team, your board, and bringing up the terms risk tolerance, risk threshold, risk appetite, educating people on what these terms mean, and then actually putting an answer, a score around what these are for you. Um, they'll help you and all of your stakeholders across the company all just speak the same language because truthfully your GRC team is your, the R risk in the GRC team 
are the the utmost experts in this space. Um, and it's up to you as a security leader to help educate and bring this to the rest of the business. Um, defining risk tolerance. What an ugly slide we have here. Um, but defining risk tolerance. An organization's risk tolerance is influenced by several factors that includes, but not limited to, statutory, regulatory, and contractual compliance obligations, including adherence to privacy principles for ethical data protection practices, organizational specific threats, natural and man-made, and, and others. Risk tolerance is simplified as being one of the following three levels, low, medium, or high. Where is your risk tolerance, low, medium, or high? I'm not going to read through all of these, but of the, th the three different levels, um, it's important to get a sense of what your risk tolerance is, right? A low risk tolerance, which means you, you, have you want a high assurance, a high assurance security programs. Um, your um, moderate risk tolerance or medium risk tolerance, kind of a moderate level of, of security assurance, and then your high level of assurance. Um, each organization is different. And in the SCF, it kind of talks about the different organizations uh, and their assurance levels. Thinking about your risk determination. Right? Risk management requires educating stakeholders for situational awareness and decision-making purposes. There are many options and formats available to report, but this can be considered your report on conformity or rock. You'll hear your compliance folks talk about the rock from time to time. The reason for this is the risk assessment fundamentally is evaluating if an organization's cybersecurity and privacy practices support its stated risk tolerance. This approach can be summarized by reporting to the organization's management on the health of the assessed controls by one of the following risk determinations. One, conform to significant deficiency. Three, material weakness. Let's talk a little bit about what these are. So conforms. Um, a rock determination of conforms is a positive outcome due to deficiencies not being material uh, to the cybersecurity and privacy program. This indicates that at a high level, the organization's cybersecurity and privacy program conforms to its selected cybersecurity and privacy practices. At the control level, there may be one or more deficient controls, but as a whole, the cybersecurity and privacy practices support the organization's stated risk tolerance. It is a statement that the assessed controls conform indicates to the organization's management that sufficient evidence of due care and due diligence exists to assure that the organization's stated risk tolerance can be achieved. All right, well, what is significant deficiency? Uh, a rock designation of significant deficiency is a negative outcome due to the deficiencies being made by the cybersecurity and privacy program. Okay. And then what is material weakness? Um, the rock determination of material weakness is a negative outcome due to the deficiencies being made by the cybersecurity privacy program. So material weakness. This indicates an organization is unable to demonstrate conformity with its selected cybersecurity and privacy practices due to deficiencies that make it probable that reasonable expected threats will not be prevented or detected in a timely manner. Okay. It's a statement that assessed controls have material weaknesses and indicates to the organization's management that one, 
The cybersecurity or privacy program is incapable of successfully performing its stated mission. And two, drastic changes to people, process, and or technology are necessary to remediate findings. So material weakness means you probably need to make some changes in your leadership in your uh, organization. So the evolve process. We touched on this last week. I'm going to take a sip of coffee before I get into it. You can take a quick view of this and then we'll get into it. All right. So when we brought this up last week, the Evolve process, or this process that's on the screen, we talked a little bit about it. This comes from Compliance Forge. The Integrated Cybersecurity Governance Model is what we're looking at here. And you can download this image in more detail uh, at complianceforge.com. It takes a comprehensive view towards governing a cybersecurity and privacy program. Without an overarching concept of operations for the broader GRC function, organizations will often find that their governance, risk management, compliance, and privacy teams are siloed into how they think and operate. Those siloed functions are unclear roles, often stem from a lack of strategic understanding of how these specific functions come together to build a symbolic working relationship between the individual teams that enables quality control over people, processes, and technologies. And I'll be back in just a moment. Alrighty. Alright, so now we'll come back. We'll dig into this thing here. So you'll see there's the image on the screen from Compliance Forge, and then with some little text box all around the screen. You'll see plan, do, check, act. So the integrated cybersecurity governance model is a utilizes plan, do, check, act. Uh, it's an approach uh, in a logical way to design a governance structure. So let's go through all, each of these four things. Plan. The overall ICM process begins with planning. Uh, this planning will define the policies, standards, and controls for the organization. It will also directly influence the tools and services that an organization purchases since technology purchases should address needs that are defined by policies and standards. Don't just buy tools. Write it into your policies and then get the tools. Got it. Do. Arguably, this is the most important section for cybersecurity and privacy practitioners. Controls are the security glue that make processes, applications, systems, and services secure. Procedures also referred to as control activities are the, are the processes how the controls are actually implemented and controlled and performed. Implemented and performed. Yes, okay. Fixing my words. Uh, check. This is the third one. Check. In simple terms, this is situational awareness. Situational awareness is only achieved through reporting through metrics and reviewing the results of audits and assessments. And then finally, ACT. This is essentially risk management, which is an encompassing area that deals with addressing two main concepts. One, 
real deficiencies that currently exist, and two, possible threats to the organization. So my takeaway of this from the SCF guide and what we just read through and looked at here is get yourself a copy from Compliance Forge of the Integrated Controls Governance Model, this thing here. And I see some value of kind of planning your, your program of what you are going to focus on from a governance perspective using the SCF controls and this guide here. And this could actually be a good management model for you to uh, implement the SCF and also implement your governance program. All right, really interesting. Moving on to our second, I think this is our final topic of the day, security and privacy capability maturity model. So this is another document that comes to us from the SCF. It is introduced in the SCF Start Here Guide. Uh, but this is, I think, the third document that they've introduced now in the SCF guide. So the SCF has built a maturity criteria for each control. The SPCMM is meant to solve the problem of objectivity in both establishing and evaluating cybersecurity and privacy controls. These are the three main objectives for the SPCMM. So there's three things we're going to talk about here. One, provide uh, the CISO or chief product officer or the CIO with objective criteria that can be used to establish expectations for a cybersecurity and privacy program. Two, provide objective criteria for project teams so that secure practices are appropriately planned and budgeted for. And three, provide minimum criteria that can be used to evaluate third-party service provider controls. There are likely many other use cases that the SPCMM can be used, but those three objectives listed above drove the development of the project. The reason for this simply comes down to a need by businesses, regardless of size or industry, for a solution that can help fix those three common frustrations that exist in most cybersecurity and privacy programs. We want to help eliminate or at least minimize the FUD that is used to justify purchases and or evaluate controls by injecting objectivity into the process. I find a lot of value in this. There's a lot of reading here and a lot of planning, but I'm seeing a lot of value in this as I'm, as I'm getting familiar with this. So the, the SPCMM, defining what right looks like. The SPCMM draws onto the high-level structure of the Systems Security Engineering Capability Maturity Model. Since we felt it was best the best model to demonstrate varying levels of maturity or people, processes, and technology at a control level. If you are unfamiliar with the SSECMM, it's well worth your time to read through the SSECMM model description document that is hosted by the U.S. Defense Technical Information Center, DTIC. Um, I know a little bit about it. I've used it in the past. Uh, I will say that I probably have not looked at it uh, recently, but I put the link right into the slide here. Uh, you can screenshot that and type that in since you can't really click it. Um, okay, the six SPCMM levels are CMM0, not performed. CMM1, performed informally. 
CMM2 planned and tracked. CMM3 well defined. CMM4 quantitatively controlled. And CMM5 continuously improving. Let's learn a little bit more about these things. Another wall of words for us here. Hopefully there's something interesting for everybody here. So the eye chart in table here summarizes the high-level expectations for small, medium, and large organizations to meet each level of maturity. So yeah, over on the right, it actually has three different organization sizes. Um, I love that, and it kind of aligns with how I do security maturity assessments too. So this is um, aligns very much with something else that I that I do. So CMM zero not performed. This level of maturity is defined as non-existence practices where the control is not being performed. There are no identifiable work products of this process. CMM zero practices are a lack thereof are generally considered to be negligent. The reason for this is if a control is reasonably expected to exist by not performing the control, that would be negligent behavior. The need for the control could be due to a law, regulation, or contractual obligation, e.g. client contract or industry association requirement. CMM1 performed informally. This level of maturity is defined as an ad hoc practices where the control is being performed but lacks completeness and consistency. Um, base practices of the process area are generally being performed. The performance of these base practices may not be rigorously planned or tracked. Performance dependent, depends on individual knowledge and effort, and there are identifiable work products for the process. CMM1 practices are generally considered to be negligent. The reason for this is if the control is reasonably expected to exist by only implementing ad hoc practices in performing the control that could be considered negligent behavior. The need for the control could be due to a law, regulation, or contractual obligation. All right, CMM2. Tracked and planned. This level of maturity is defined as requirements-driven practices, where the expectations for controls are known, like their statutory, regulatory, or contractual obligations. And practices are tailored to meet those specific requirements. Uh, performance of the base practices in the process area is planned and tracked. Performance according to specified procedures is verified, and work products conform to specified standards and requirements. CMM2 practices are generally considered to be audit-ready with an acceptable level of evidence to demonstrate due diligence and due care in the execution of the control. CMM2 practices are generally targeted on specific systems, networks, applications, or processes that require the control to be performed for a compliance need like PCI, HIPAA, or some NIST uh, compliance. It can be argued that CMM2 practices focus more on compliance over security. The reason for this is the scoping of CMM2 practices are narrowly focused and are not organization-wide. So CMM2 is kind of your intro to passing the compliance checkbox. That's my take. CMM3 well-defined. 
This level of maturity is defined as enterprise-wide standardization, where the practices are well-defined and standardized across the organization. CMM3 practices are generally considered to be audit-ready with an acceptable level of evidence to demonstrate due diligence and due care in the execution of the control. Unlike CMM2 practices that are narrowly focused, CMM3 practices are standardized across the organization. It can be argued that CMM3 practices focus on security over compliance, where compliance is a natural byproduct of those secure practices. This is where things start to get good. I get it. Uh, there are well-defined and properly scoped practices that span the organization regardless of the department or geographic considerations. So, if I'm trying to be an actual secure organization and I'm using this type of model to help in my maturity, I'm shooting for nothing less than three. Plain and simple. Uh, if I'm at an organization and I'm told just to shoot for two, it's not the place I want to be. Other people might be fine with that, just compliance. But for me... Three is the barrier to entry. Uh, CMM4, quantitatively controlled. This level of maturity is defined as metrics-driven practices, where the addition of being well-defined and standardized practices across the organization that are detailed metrics to enable governance oversight. CMM4 practices are generally considered to be audit-ready with an acceptable level of evidence to demonstrate due diligence and due care in the execution of the control, as well as detailed metrics enable an objective oversight function. Metrics can be daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, whatever. Okay, CMM5. Now we're getting up there. Continuously improving. Oh, so before we move on to five, four, you're, you know, fairly mature security organization. You've got metrics. You're able to produce those on a regular basis. Sounds like you got some thoughtful pro program management um, into your security and privacy program. Okay, CMM5. Continuously improving. This level of maturity is defined as world-class practices, where the practices are not only well-defined and standardized across the organization, as well as having detailed metrics, but the process is continuously improving. CMM5 practices are generally considered to be audit-ready with an acceptable level of evidence to demonstrate due diligence and due care in the execution of the control and incorporates a capability to continuously improve the process. This is where artificial intelligence and machine learning would exist since AI and ML would focus on evaluating performance and making continuous adjustments to improve the process. However, AI and ML are not requirements to be CMM5. Um, okay, that's kind of cool. So I could see organizations striving to get to five, but some may actually be having um, culture conversations of, of, you know, asking yourself like, okay, how important is compliance? How important is security? How important is privacy to our business? And some organizations may just say, it's too expensive. We just need to do what we need to do to run our business. In many cases, we're not talking about negligence. We're just talking about those who are just thoughtfully saying security and privacy are are necessary to run our business, but it's not what we're using um, to drive our business. Other organizations will actually start to highlight that security and privacy 
uh, is a focus to be a competitive advantage, right? How do we compete over our competitors? And some organizations will say, we're going to compete over our competitors by demonstrating that we are very secure and very privacy conscious. And not only do we say <laughs> during a security breach, we take security and privacy very seriously, but we actually do take security and privacy very seriously. Those are the companies that are going to be striving for CMM4 and CMM5. Um, personally, I actually find this model very valuable for a security leader to understand and bring this to your stakeholders, right? Most CISOs don't report to the CEO. They report to some other executive in the company, SVP or EVP level. Once you get your arms wrapped around this maturity model, bring it to your boss and help you and your boss come to a, a level of agreement for the business that you want to bring to the executive leadership team and bring to the board of where we want to focus as a business. Get the buy-in. You don't have to own this as a security leader. You get the buy-in of your stakeholders of where are we headed, you know, from a small, medium, large perspective. Uh, where are we headed? And small, medium, and large could be based off of revenue. Sometimes small company, you know, that that's we can make different determinations. In the past, I've made determinations of like a small company is, you know, five to fifteen million dollars in revenue. A medium-sized company <coughs> is um, from there up to a couple hundred million in revenue, and then a large company is you know a billion in revenue, and then you know extra large would be beyond that. Um, but being able to have this conversation to say, where are we driving to? Um, and, uh, when do we want to get there? This can be extremely valuable. I actually love this chart. Um, yeah, it's different than the actual, um, secure control framework themselves, but now it's helping you determine how would you implement all these different controls or how do you help scope those controls? If you're realizing, Hey, my company just wants to be CMM level three. Well, you're not going to be doing all 1,000 controls. You're going to be doing a whole lot less than that. Moving on. Defining a capability maturity sweet spot, very much with what we're just talking about here. For most organizations, the sweet spot for maturity targets is between CMM2 and CMM4. What defines the ideal target within this zone is generally based on resource limitations and other business constraints. So it goes beyond just the cybersecurity and privacy teams dictating targets. Identifying maturity targets is meant to be a team effort between both technologists and business stakeholders. From a business consideration, the increase in cost and complexity will always require cybersecurity and privacy leadership to provide a compelling business case to support any maturity planning needs. Speaking in terms the business can understand is vitally important. Negligence considerations. Without the ability to demonstrate evidence of both due care and due diligence, an organization may be found negligent. In practical terms, the negligence threshold is between CMM1 and CMM2. The reason for this is that CMM2 practices are formalized to the point that documented evidence exists to demonstrate reasonable steps were taken to operate and control. Um, let's talk about risk considerations. Risks associated with the control in question decreases with maturity, but noticeable risk reductions are harder to attain above CMM3. Oversight and process automation can decrease risk, 
but generally not as noticeably as steps taken to attain CMM3. Let's talk about process review lag considerations. Risks, uh, process improvements increase with maturity based on shorter review cycles and increased process oversight. What might have been an annual review cycle to evaluate and tweak a process can be near real time with AI or ML. Okay, uh, interesting, I guess. And then the last one, stakeholder value considerations. The perceived value of security controls increases with maturity. However, perceived value tends to decrease after CMM3 since the value of the additional cost and complexity becomes harder to justify to business stakeholders. Companies that are genuinely focused on being industry leaders are ideal candidates for CMM5 targets to support their aggressive business model needs. So that last piece very much aligns with uh, what I was just talking about a moment ago, uh, which is where does your organization want to lie? Have this conversation with your executive team to find out where you really are at. Um, I see a lot of companies striving to get to CMM3, get to level three, and that's kind of where they stay. But have the conversation with your organization because there are some organizations, some executive leadership teams, and some board of directors who may very well say, wait, we're only striving to get to three. Why aren't we striving to four or five? And many cases is to say that it's actually quite expensive to get to those higher levels. Relatively um, relatively easy in the scope of things to get to level three. But once you get to three, it's quite difficult to get to four and five and to keep with it. And as our company grows, um, it's harder to stay at those levels and uh, and it's more expensive. So, you know, you got to think about the cost and the complexity of your program to determine which level you really want to be at. I love this chart. I love the screen. Um, I think it's very valuable for educating yourself and your executive leadership team. Moving on, SVP CMM, there's a couple use cases here. I'm probably just going to blast through these now that we're kind of uh, high on time. I knew we were going to go through time pretty quick here today. So CMM use case one, uh, this is an objective criteria to build a cybersecurity and privacy program. So I'll put the slide on the screen here and I'll read some of the notes I gathered. Um, identifying a target maturity state is intended to support your organization's mission and strategy. So without first understanding the broader mission of the organization and having prioritized objectives, a CISO or CIO or chief product officer will be guessing when it comes to establishing expectations for capability maturity. Like anything in life, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. CMM rollouts are no exception. The time to execute a business plan to mature a cybersecurity and privacy program generally spans several years where certain capabilities are prioritized over other capabilities. This means your CISO, CIO, CPO will establish CMM targets that evolve each year based on prioritization. Um, in the graphic, the use of the spider chart can be beneficial to identify current and future gaps to the maturity model. Prioritization of capability maturities can be based on risk assessments, audits, compliance obligations, and management direction. You want to identify a problem, have some considerations for that problem. So first, identifying the problem. 
Using capability maturity model helps organizations avoid moving targets for expectations. Maturity goals define what right looks like in terms of the required people, process, and technology that are expected to exist in order to execute controls at the individual contributor level. Without maturity goals, it is very difficult to, subjective, to be subjective and define success for security and privacy program. Let's talk about considerations. Cybersecurity and privacy departments are a cost center, not a revenue generating business function. That means cybersecurity and privacy compete with all other departments for budget, and it necessitates a compelling business case to justify needed technology and staffing. Business leaders are getting smarter on the topic of cybersecurity and privacy, so these leaders need to rise above the FUD mentality and deliver value that is commensurate with the needs of the business. You, you, you need to go find a way to educate your leaders on why it's important to invest in these programs, but also have your leaders buy in. So you're not just selling it to them. You're saying, hey, wh where do we want to be? All right, great. Based off of our conversations as business leaders, uh, we know where we want to be. And uh, th this is our path to get there over the next few years. And uh, here's where we want to invest now. Okay. Use case number two. Assist project teams to appropriately plan and budget secure practices. When you consider regulations such as GDPR, there is an expectation for systems, applications, and processes to identify and incorporate cybersecurity and privacy by default and, and by design. In order to determine what is appropriate and to evaluate it prior to go live, it necessitates expectations for control maturity to be defined. So similar to the other use case, let's identify the problem and let's talk about some considerations. So first, identifying the problem. In planning a project or initiative, it's important to establish what looks right from security and privacy controls that must be implemented to address all compliance needs. This includes internal requirements as well as external requirements from applicable laws, regulations, and contracts. Prior planning of requirements can reduce delays and other costs associated with re-engineering. Let's look at the considerations. So CMM levels zero and one of maturity are identified as being deficient from a reasonable person perspective in most cases. Therefore, project teams need to look at the capability maturity sweet spot between CMMs level two, three, and four to identify the reasonable people process and technologies that are needed to be incorporated into the solution. As previously covered, avoiding negligent behavior is a critical consideration. The most common constraints that impact a project's maturity are one, budget, and two, time. Simple. Uh, having an SDLC as constraints and expectations are th that security and privacy programs are applied throughout the software development lifecycle. Okay. And we have a th one more use case here, use case number three provide objective criteria to evaluate third-party service provider security. Uh, so it's now commonplace for third-party service providers, including vendors and partners, to be contractually bound to implement and manage a baseline set of cybersecurity and privacy controls. This necessitates oversight of third-party service providers to ensure controls are properly implemented and managed. Even though my notes here look pretty 
sparse on the screen, I do have some notes here that I'll talk about. So first off, um, let's identify the problem and let's talk about considerations. So identifying the problem. In managing a cybersecurity and privacy program, it's important to address controls in a holistic manner, which includes governing the supply chain. Uh, Third-party service providers are commonly considered the soft underbelly for an organization's security program, since third-party service providers' oversight has traditionally been weak or non-existent in most organizations. There have been numerous publicized examples of third-party service providers being the source of an incident or a breach. One of the issues with managing third-party service providers is most questionnaires ask for a simple yes, no, or not applicable answers. This approach lacks details that provide critical insight into the actual security posture of the third-party service provider. The capability maturity model can be used to obtain more nuanced answers by having those service providers select from CMM level zero to five to answer if the control is implemented and how mature the process is. Sounds like a lot of work for everybody. And it gets me into the third party risk management topic, which we'll get to uh, in another episode. Let's talk about some of the considerations for this use case. So CMM level zero and one of maturity are identified as being deficient from a reasonable person perspective in most cases. Therefore, organizations need to look at the capability maturity sweet spot between CMM 2 through 4 to identify the reasonable people, process, and technologies that third-party service providers need to be able to demonstrate to properly protect your systems, applications, services, and data regardless where it's stored, transmitted, or processed. Third-party service provider management perspective, this is often going to limit target CMM levels to 2 and 3 for most organizations. Uh, From third-party service providers, controls are expected to cover both your internal requirements as well as external requirements from applicable laws, controls, contracts. Using the SPCMM can be an efficient way to provide a level of quality control over third-party service practices. Being able to demonstrate proper cybersecurity practices built upon the security principles protecting confidentiality, integrity, availability, and safety of your assets, including data. I think one of the biggest takeaways of this here is thinking about assessing your vendors, your third-party service providers, where do they fall in your assessment of the capability maturity model? Because let's say you and your CTO or your CIO or your CEO says, we want to be CMM level four or five because we want to be an industry leader. We want to be world-class. We want to have a competitive advantage. And your chief product officer says, hey, I want to bring a chat bot and integrate it into our, our SaaS product. And and it's going to you know make this really cool capability for our product and for our customers. And your security team assesses that chat bot and realizes the security and privacy controls of that company that manages that chat bot are very poor compared to where we are and where we're headed. And you're saying your company's headed to level four or five because you want to be that competitive leader and you're implementing third-party tools into your products, which everybody is doing now, and those third-party tools are very immature. They're young companies. They only fall into, like, CMM level two. What do you do, right? The easiest thing you say is you bring us to your executive leadership team and say, this tool is high risk. It's a high-risk tool. It's it's failing our security uh, third-party risk assessment, and here's our problem. It's a 
you know, their security is a level two. We're a level three currently, and we're trying to get to level four. This tool will never allow us to get to level four. What do we do? And you let your executive leadership team make those decisions. You bring them the valuable information. You help weigh in, but you give them some realization of, do we really want to get to CMM level four or five, or are we just saying it? Do we really want this capability that's going to reduce our maturity? Um, there's a, there's a trade-off there. It's a trade-off. This I love this use case because this is real world. This is um, something that can be implemented. Well, folks, there are more sections in the secure control framework. I just want to give you a high-level overview. Like the next piece is in the risk management model, and it is something that I feel like at some point we could dig into, but it gets again a whole lot deeper, uh, just like all the other areas that are at. But I think. We've covered quite a bit for the day, and I think I'm going to take a breather from this before we get on to our next section. Ah, another fresh sip of coffee. Well, before we wrap up today, I want to mention or get us into the section we know as what what you listening to or creating. But hold on just one second. I'll be right back. All right. As we get into our final section of the day, what you listening to. Uh, as I do mention here on this, uh, at the top of our episode, I actually have a live stream on Twitch known as Music by SV. I actually perform uh, live music. Very different from what we're doing here today. Uh, but I do listen to a lot of music, consume a lot of music. I even create some music. And every week I at least like to talk for a few minutes of uh, what am I listening to. And I'd love to know what you are listening to as well. So you can let me know in the comments of where you listen to this or in the stream if you're joining me live. What have I been listening to lately? Sometimes it's great to have kids around because you get introduced to new things. And uh, one thing that I've been introduced to and I've been listening to a lot of lately is the artist Conan Gray. I keep saying Conan Gray because I used to work with someone who pronounced the spelling of that word Conan. And so I get stuck. But I'm talking about the artist Conan Gray. Um, I guess I would describe it as ballady pop music. I've, I've specifically said and others around me have said Conan Gray if you're not familiar with his music it sounds like a male version of Taylor Swift and Olivia Rodrigo so if Taylor Swift and Olivia Rodrigo were mashed up um, as a male you'd have Conan Gray uh, thanks to having kids around me um, I've been introduced to his music and it's quite good very well written, incredibly produced. Did some digging because it's kind of like singer-songwriter pop music. Lots of uh, relationship stories, love stories, breakup stories. And um, I, I saw, I think it was G Julia Michaels, who's, who's a pretty well-known, uh, I should say well-known, not very well-known, but um, does a lot of songwriting for some, some big bands larger uh, bands and artists um, does some of the writing for Conan Gray so that's what I've been listening to over on Spotify and all the places um, 
what else have I been listening to? I've uh, been listening to um, a little bit of Jane's Addiction going back to the late 80s, early 90s, just a, a change of pace. Um, and uh, a week ago, my band, Octavate, we got to perform live, so it was nice. We actually performed a Jane song. We performed some of our own songs. So I've been listening to my, a lot of my own music outside of that. So that's what I've been listening to as of late. Um, we'll talk about other things next week. So, folks, that's what I've been listening to. I think we're going to wrap things up today. I want to thank you all for listening and joining today. I'm Sean Valley, creator of this show and the music here on Cybersecurity Growth. You can find more about me and Cybersecurity Growth over at cybersecuritygrowth.com and my blog, cybersecuritygrowth.com slash blog. You can find me all over the interwebs on with the name at Sean Valley or at Cybersecurity Growth. If you like the show, please tell your friends. If you hate it, tell your adversaries. Uh, please like and subscribe to the show. Leave five stars and a review like this. I'll give you an example. Leave a review like this. Great show. I learned something new to help me in my cybersecurity career. Uh, this week, we covered the practical application of the Secure Controls Framework. We picked up from where we left off last week. My takeaway is if you're dealing with three or more security or privacy frameworks, it's worth investing time into SCF and possibly a tool that uses SCF as an overarching security framework for all your compliance, security, privacy frameworks. It may save you time and provides a holistic framework for just about any control you could imagine. But it can also be overwhelming if you're just getting started. So if you're just getting started on your compliance, security, privacy journey, you may want to wait a year or two before you jump into SCF. Uh, plans for next week. We're going to get into my approach for the first 100 days as a security leader. I've done this a few times over now, so I figure why not share some of my playbook. Uh, this could be for a CISO or chief security officer, but it could also be for director level, uh, someone who's reporting to the CISO. Um, and as you'll see some of my overview, it could actually be applied to any type of business leader. It's targeted to a security leader because that's where I built it from. But this approach I built uh, when I was a director of security operations in multiple roles where I reused it. And I've used this approach twice now um, as a CISO of two different organizations. But this could definitely be uh, used if you are a GRC director, SecOps director, product security director, etc. So next week we'll go over my approach for the first 100 days as a security leader. What to do in your first 100 days. This show is live on Twitch weekly, Fridays at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 7.30 a.m. Pacific, 3.30 p.m. GMT, and in your pod feeds a few days later. We are now live on Spotify, Apple Music, Pocket Cast, Amazon, wherever you get pods. Thank you all for joining. Thank you for joining on Cybersecurity Growth, episode number two in the Secure Controls Framework. We will see you next time. Bye for now, everybody.